today. I am here to give you the assurance that I have not forgotten you. If we want to see the new evangelization become more than just jargon, if we want to see it grow legs and gain traction and change the world, we have got to take seriously our responsibilities as husbands and fathers and especially as sons of God. I want to propose to you then that something that our world is desperately in need of in the midst of this crisis is Catholic Christian masculinity. If you want to be a good father, then bring your children to confession with you. I can't get there unless I become a man of ascesis, a man of asceticism, a man of training. A man not doing penance, a man not disciplined, is not a man. You guys have upped your game. You know what, guys, I gotta say, I, I love this the concept of man show. Warning, the Catholic Man Show is about to begin. Welcome to the Catholic Man Show. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side. So raise your glass. Adam Minahan here, sitting in studio with David Niles. And we have a, a, a very, I'm excited about our guest this uh, morning. Man, we're, we've started doing morning shows, which is really throwing me off. It's weird. I'm always used to saying it's in weird the evening. But uh, Dr. Timothy O'Malley from the University of Notre Dame, uh, the McGrath Institute, uh, probably better known as a dad to two children and a husband to uh, one they wife. They are children. Yep, they are children. Yeah. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. Yeah. Uh, this is the the last hurrah for you in the Diocese of Tulsa in Eastern Oklahoma for a week. Yeah. I mean, for this week. For this week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there there shall be a return. There, there could, hope, yeah. Yeah. Very we hope well. so. We, we, we remain in hope. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been great. Tulsa's awesome. Yeah. You, but you've been here. It's been kind of a whirlwind. You've been going all over the diocese. Yeah. I've seen... Small town, small towns, medium-sized towns, medium-sized towns, large towns. Yeah, the so, whole the whole gambit. Yeah, so I mean, not many people get to do that when they visit, or not many people are subjected or to all want of that. to. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. It was uh, man, I learned a lot. So sweet. Yeah, I like Tulsa. Sweet. I'm pro Tul- Tulsa. Yeah, Tulsa's a great place. Me too. So, uh, Doctor O'Malley, uh, you recently wrote a book uh, with. Our city of visitors? No, uh, Ave Maria Press. Ave Maria Press. Thank you. Um, on on the Eucharistic, on Eucharistic people, on evangelization with the parishes. Um, maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I wanted to write a book. So I I've been involved in the Eucharistic revival for the USCCB since it started, and uh, I wanted to write a book that was a little bit more uh, helping parishes think through, like, well, actually, how do you live out this Eucharistic culture um, with folks in the pews with families, uh, you know, the whole thing. So the goal is, you know, can you take this revival and actually live it out wherever you are instead of just, all right, there are some YouTube videos, let's watch them. And be done. And be done as quickly as possible, which is, I think, one of the risks of sort of any one of these projects. Um, So Mm -hmm. it's trying to think about, like, how do you shape a parish culture Mm -hmm. to live Eucharistically? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, And let me ask you about 
what the goals are of the USCCB. So they, you know, obviously I think we could, we cannot do anything more important than establish the centrality of the Eucharist, right? Because it is the source and summit of our faith. So are they hoping to get more perpetual adoration going? Are they hoping to uh, do catechesis? You know, what's the, what's their mission? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of everything. And um, early on, right, uh, the 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 revival arose out of the Pew Report in some sense that, you know, 70% of Catholics don't seem to know or understand or believe in the teaching around the Eucharist. Yeah. Um, you know, then there was COVID-19 and there was fracturing and there was polarization and people mm-hmm. weren't coming back to church and I think the goal changed at this stage to, you know, can we think about the importance of the Eucharist to the whole life of the church? Uh, you know, the way it's set up, right? It's going to lead to this Congress in Indianapolis where, you know, certain tens of thousands of people will gather together for that. And then really the next year is the missionary year, right? So how do you go out from your parish and share the gift of the Eucharist with people? So will that be more Eucharistic adoration? Yeah, I think so. Is it going to be better masses? I hope so. Um, is it going to be like catechesis of adults and kids and teenagers so that not only do you understand, you know, the doctrines of real presence and transubstantiation, but you also understand, you know, the sacrifice of your life you're supposed to make. And you actually have devotion to the Eucharist. I think all those things are going to be sort of a goal. And the best part is it's really a, a sort of from below movement. So the USCCB is setting the stage, but it's whatever a diocese, a parish, an apostolate really wants to do. Nice. How about that? That was pretty succinct. Yeah, no, I think that was a very good answer. And I, I like that they're doing it that way. Setting the stage, as you put it, and then letting the bishops in their own dioceses do what they see is, you know, most needed or fits in with the culture of their area. You know, I think I think that is the only way it would it can be successful. It's the only way anything can be successful. Yeah. The US church is definitely not a, a monolithic entity. Tulsa right. is not Chicago. Right. Which you knew. Yes. Right. Yes. yes. Praise God. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Sorry, Chicago. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're going to talk about the Eucharist today. Uh, we're going to talk about, um, you know, what is the Eucharist and then a whole host of maybe other questions that we can just like ask you uh, maybe the, to start out with because we have non-Catholics who listen to our show. Uh, what what do we mean when we say the Eucharist? What, what is, let's define, let's define some terms. What do we mean by the Eucharist? Yeah, so the Eucharist is the central act of worship for a Catholic, right? It's it's what every part of our lives are to be ordered to, right? So it's certainly the celebration, the making present of Christ's sacrifice of love, his very presence. So what he did the night before he died, he does for us now right here uh, in every parish and every church. Um, it is therefore... Our sacrifice, our return gift, God gives himself. I like how Benedict XVI speaks about it. God has given himself in love to us and still gives himself in love to us through the Eucharist. We offer the return gift of our lives to this. Right? So it's the central act of worship. Of course, the Eucharist also refers to the body and blood of Jesus Christ. In addition to our worship, it, it, it is a way of referring to what is the transformation of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Uh, Substantially, that is um, at the very level of what the thing is. It is forever changed, right? Into him. It's his personal presence given to us. 
And that's why we adore the Eucharist, right? Catholics don't worship bread. Um, at least most Catholics I, that I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that we, would be weird. That would be weird. Yeah. I mean, there's some really good bread out there, but yeah, uh, I, I agree. like a nice challah or sourdough, I could sure. imagine it. Um, yeah, I'm a big brioche guy. Yeah, you exactly. Know? Yeah. yeah, you could see it, but uh, we worship Christ who is made present in what looks like bread and wine. Mm-hmm. So it's both the act of worship, but it's also his personal presence uh, in the church. And that and it's so central to us, right? Because our, our whole lives are to be ordered towards this act of reception and self-gift. It's where we learn, we, we never graduate from Mass or the Eucharist. Um, it's just, we keep going back. So other, other religious faiths, 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 whatever. Both are fine. Yeah. They also uh, will celebrate communion services on occasion. What's the difference between what they're doing and what we do at the Catholic Mass? Yeah, the, the difference is, so it's not merely commemorative, right? So it's not like, all right, once upon a time, there was this Jesus guy and he did this supper and now we should do it. And, you know, there's a sort of graced feeling to that. Like, you know, I, I grew up in the South and I had Methodists who would do this. And, you know, there's, as Benedict XVI said, you know, any act of worship has a certain degree of grace or God's gift, right? But for a Catholic, it's not just, you know, a little bit of grace, uh, you know, that comes through like feeling wow, like how, what a gift that God once did this. Um, rather, God does this now, right? Mm-hmm. This is the event that unfolds. It is the sacrifice, and of course, his resurrection and his ascension, all made available to us so that we might experience his saving effects here and now, right? And it's privileged, and, it, and, it, it, and of course, right, from that, some, that real sacrifice, there's also the real presence, right? It's a real sacrifice and a real presence. He becomes present right? And stays present and transforms that bread and wine uh, into his body and blood of Christ. That's different than a commemoration. Wonderful. Okay, so as I'm explaining, uh, you know, God to our, our my children and trying to tell them, you know, what is God? Who is God? Like, um, that he's not a contradiction, right? That he, he can't make a boulder that he can't pick up. Those, you know, these kind of things, right? That you can't be in motion and not in motion at the same time. Uh, how is it that Jesus, who's at rest in heaven, not moving or, or at rest, is still moving or or present in the Eucharist at Mass? Oh, man. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's no, a big question. And it's one that St. Thomas Aquinas really worried about. So okay. um, St. Thomas wrote a lot about the Eucharist. And uh, his the Summa, in a Summa, uh, around the Eucharist, right? There's, um, he asks a question like, is Christ present as in a place, right? You know, like you and I are here as in a place. And he determines, no, Christ can't be present as in a place because um, if he was present in a place, then he couldn't be on all the altars of the world at once, right? And does he take a little vacation from the right hand of the father and just come visit us for a bit? I'll be back. I'll yeah. be back. And yeah. um, so uh, the teaching instead is, is this, is that the substance of bread and wine, what they are. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Okay. This is, uh, you know, one of the downfalls of having a, a radio show and a podcast. Uh, we are constricted on time. So when we get back, we're going to pick up this uh, this conversation on the other side of the break. I think we probably should. Yeah. Unlike God. We Unlike are God. We will be time, back. Yeah. All right. God came back.
Listen, I know this is going to be a tough sell for you guys, but humor me here. This October, hundreds of Catholic men gathered together from around the world at Estes Park, Colorado. Beautiful Estes Park, Colorado in October. It's going to be gorgeous for a five-day adventure dedicated to helping everybody build a better prayer life, forming up virtue in a life beyond Exodus 90, and having brotherly fellowship, getting to know one another, most likely over a pint. Join us, exodus90.com slash the summit. We're going to be there. Dave and I, we're going to be giving a talk. We have a live Catholic Man Show episode there. Join us, exodus90.com slash summit. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles. Here with Adam Minahan, our special guest, Dr. Tim O'Malley, University of Notre Dame. Fighting Irish. Go Irish. Uh, Dr. O'Malley, you were talking about Jesus being present and what St. Thomas Aquinas determined on this question. I think this is a fascinating question because my initial thought was, well, yeah, he can be present. I mean, like, he's actually here, but... I, you know, as you're continuing to describe Thomas, like I, I see what he's getting at, I yeah. think. So yeah. anyway, carry on. Sure. So he's not present in the Eucharist as in a place, right? Yeah. He doesn't move. You can't schlep. He doesn't have exclusivity exactly. in his location. Yeah, you're not, you can't schlep him around, right? right? You're, you're not schlepping Jesus around or locking him in a tabernacle. Uh-huh. Like, oh no, I'm in a tabernacle. Um, no, no, no. I'd love to get Hello? out. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, not letting you out until you answer my prayers. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so... Uh, it's a substantial presence. And, and substance just means what something really is. And it's not visible. It's not tangible. You can't touch substance, um, you know. And so in the Eucharist, Christ is substantially present, which means he's there in his whole person. It's what we mean by body and blood, soul and divinity. It's him. It's the resurrected Lord who becomes present, right? But substantially present. And so in the Eucharist, right, um, what Thomas says is the accidents remain, right? You know, it looks like bread, it tastes like bread, yeah. uh, looks like wine, tastes like wine. And so the accidents remain. And that means that, um, right, though the Lord gives himself and is present fully, um, it is a substantial presence. So it's not like the kind of presence of place. That's actually what makes the the Eucharist a miracle for St. Thomas. It's that um, somehow the species remain and God has become present in a way that he's transformed this little material thing into his full and absolute presence. Um, but he can do that on every altar because he remains at the right hand of the Father. Um, and so he's there, right? So he's not mm-hmm. moving around. There, there's no sort of movement. And, and of course, right, this was really essential. And it's often where in the Reformation things broke down. Uh, a lot of the Reformers thought the Catholics thought Jesus was leaving heaven and coming to the altar. And that was a mistake that's actually never been Catholic teaching. Where do you think we went wrong? Like, you know, I original think... Original sin. I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, my assumption, and this, I'm, I'm making an assumption here, is that the belief in the Eucharist among Catholics used to be much stronger. Um, I don't know when it got to... I mean, because it's... I mean, is, is it right? It's about 20 or 25% believe in the real presence the Pew report says 31%. 31. Okay. Mm-hmm. That is like, that's unacceptably low. You mm-hmm. know, like there's no metric. There's no thing where it's like, oh yeah, that's, we're doing good. No, it's, it's, this is a crisis, right? Um, do you have any idea when, like, how did we, how did that happen? Yeah. I mean, 
I think there's two parts to this. So the first is like the actual ability to articulate the doctrine and understand it and believe in it. And I think, um, you know, I, I suspect that Catholics have never fully been able to articulate or the, the doctrine or right. I mean, I think about my own parish, you know, when in the creed, when we say that the son is consubstantial with the father, I have, I suspect that no one knows what they're saying, or, you know, a lot of no. people just don't know what they're saying and they're still going to mass and they love the Lord. They know Jesus is God, but they don't understand consubstantiality. That's why uh-huh. I've dedicated my life to teaching those things. But I think secondarily, you know, the, the belief problem to me isn't just telling people about things or, or telling them about the doctrines. It's really a matter, I think, of reverence. When, you know, when did things go awry? You know, I think we had and continue to have sort of irreverent celebrations of the Eucharist. It, it's not clear that actually anything remarkable, in a lot of parishes throughout the United States, it's not clear that anything remarkable is happening at Mass, right? It's really yeah. focused on the community. It's internally focused. And... Um, you know, I think that's where we went awry. Uh, and I think it's where we still go awry. That's why I think a Eucharistic revival has to attend to reverence, which doesn't mean stuffiness. It doesn't mean, you know, everyone has to go to the Latin mass. What I mean is what happens on that altar is real and it's serious and it's saving. Right. And, and I you think, need to believe it. Yes. Like I want to, I want to see from the priest, like, do you believe this? Exactly. Do you believe what's going on right now? Yeah. Are you praying? Is the priest praying or right. does he sound like he's reading, uh, you know, from a phone book or uh, as quickly as possible with as a weird actor, right? I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes they... That that does bug me when a priest, you know, rushes through the words of consecration, like, you know? You mean or, like or, in or, Ireland? Yeah. Where you can get a mass done like... <laughs> yeah, about 25 tw- seconds. Tw- tw- yeah. oh, I was going to say like 12 minutes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. Fast. Yeah. It's like, wait, that was wild when that... Yeah. Are we done? Yeah. Uh... But I'm so glad. I agree with what you said 100%. Um, Reverence is the thing that I think we need um, that needs to make a return. For instance, when mass is over, um, often you'll you'll see people are like just talking casually in the pews, you know. And and Christ is still present here in the tabernacle. You are still before the God of the universe. Mm -hmm. You know, you're in the sanctuary, okay. And I, I I'm not passing judgment on it anybody who does this because they just haven't been taught. It hasn't occurred to them. Right. Um, but we need to revitalize the culture of reverence for the Eucharist. Um, you know, if you're in the sanctuary, that's one of the things about a Catholic church, you go to Protestant churches. It's like, Oh yeah, this is nice. It's nice in here. You go into a Catholic church and it's like, there's this quiet and reverent, you know, and it, it it's penetrating. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and like the thing that I, attracts me often to the Latin mass isn't even the liturgy itself. It's the reverence with which it's being done by the people in the pews, by the priest, all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm attracted more to that, to um, the, the ordered, the orderness mm-hmm. of everything from everybody, you know, that we're actually treating the Eucharist the way it should be treated. Um, and, and so that's what we have to get back to because we have the thing that nobody else has, you know, the mega churches should be empty because they don't have what we have. Yeah. And I, you know, I think, uh, we have to go back to it, but it really is actually, we're moving forward from the council on it because, you know, even before the council, right. The, the real problem, it was actually a lot of people didn't celebrate the mass like this, right. They, yeah. they didn't know what was going on. They went very quick mm-hmm. and, and they were in and out. And, you know, I think, 
the reason why a lot of folks who go to Latin Mass today, right, it's very serious and very reverent and very devout. It's because they've chosen to be there, right? Right. And so exactly, that's yeah. they're they're really committed to this reverence. And so I think we need the that culture to transform every one of our parishes, whether you're a charismatic Catholic mm-hmm. or a you, you know. 1990s style church novus ordo catholic or mm. you know something else you know yeah. it, everything has to to sort of be grounded in in the reality of what's going on I, yeah because the ordinary form can be can be done incredibly beautifully incredibly reverently i mean it seems like right I mean, after the all, council it, we both go to Nor- i mean i think you, yeah. you said too like we all go to novus ordo parishes right yep. that's, that's yeah. my spirituality that's, yep. and, that's what and i get i like latin mass too but that's just not where i go but it seems like right after the um second vatican council the way that the mass was envisioned by those council fathers was immediately jettisoned for, um, you know, more the wild, wild e- west. Yeah. Experimental versions. Yeah. I mean, things. there was a, a goal and I think a lot of people were like, all right, what comes next? And, you know, I always think like, well, it was a crazy time though. Like, uh, I was born in 1982, 12 years after the new mass came into existence. I always have to remember that. Uh, and so, you, you know, when I was growing up, a lot of weird things were still happening, but I have to admit, like I go to my parishes and I don't, I, I see reverence. I see, you know, you know there's a yeah. kind of grounding. We're, we're not really that far removed from the moment itself. And so, you know, I think the era of like crazy experimentation for the most part, for the most part, you can is, find oh. things on YouTube. Yeah, always. Right. Sure, sure. But I, I think it's over. And I think Thanks people are really that. trying to celebrate the mass. Uh, right. But yeah. We, yeah, you can always be better. Totally. Okay, totally. okay so I have, a, I have another question. Let's say, hypothetically, uh, all three of us, right, you know, to, uh, my lips to God's ears, that we all make it to heaven. And we're all in front of the beatific vision, right? And we're all hanging out. And I'm like, Tim, come over here, float over here, come, come check this out. And I, we look down on earth and we see the consecration happening. Uh, and we see the Eucharist being held up and Christ being truly present in the Eucharist right there. Boom. Like, we're in front of the beatific vision. And like, I know seeing is not, kind of like not, I mean, that's a tough word because that's not actually not what we're doing. Cause we're, you know, right. Cause we're in you, heaven. If mass is being celebrated, the resurrection of the body hasn't taken place yet. Right. So, but like, what do we like? Forget it. Forget about that. What, what are we, what are we seeing? Like what, what's happening here? How, how, do, how does it, how do we, can you just describe heaven to us? <laughs> yeah. That seems to be the question. I, like, I am a little bit more perplexed on this one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or okay okay let me let's go let's go back let's say are you asking no, like, like if we'll be interested in the fact that mass is yeah, going because we on have, we're, we're, we have the beatific vision right here right oh, you, you won't be looking you won't be looking at that's the mass. kind of what i think right. you're gazing upon him face to face now that's a eucharistic gazing right all the masses you've attended all of the gazing all of the acts of love none of that is left in behind in heaven like the soul isn't a ghost right uh, for saint thomas the soul is your mind your memory your imagination your whole interior life all that is with you and you are gazing upon him face to face in that gift of love you are part of the the choir of the angels and the saints singing that is your focus you know what you are concerned about is the communion of the faithful right and those the the, the church militant mm-hmm. who you're praying and interceding for and de- desiring their sort of encounter um that's the the focus it, it is a sort of eucharistic seeing but but it's you know since heaven really isn't a place right you, you probably couldn't like look down and see anything else. Yeah. Language is, is a barrier here. Heaven but. is weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome, it's I, think. Awesome. I, think, I think. I think. I think it'll be, I I think it'll be weird. I suspect. I think it'll be sweet. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, in your talk last night, and a co- even a couple of times today, the idea of this gift of love, right, and this exchange, uh, that's something everywhere in, in creation. I mean, it is down to, like, the minutest 
like even subatomic particles, you can kind of see this exchange of persons. I mean, they're not persons, but you know, that the interaction between things to create larger and more significant things. Um, and it just seems like, I'll finish this question on the other side of the break, but it seems like this is a very important thing that God wanted us to know and understand about reality and about life as human beings. So I'll have a real question for you on the other side of the break. Awesome. We're here with Dr. Tim O'Malley. Go check out uh, thecatholicmanshow.com. We have over 300 and some odd episodes available. We'll be right back. Hey guys, David Niles here from The Catholic Man Show with Adam Minahan. And if you haven't heard, we wrote a book. With our wives, so you know it's good. That's right. And it's on the domestic church called Living Beyond Sunday, Making Your Home a Holy Place. And that's exactly what it's about. How to live the faith beyond just going to Mass on Sunday. How to experience and live your life at home so that we can grow towards holiness. That's right. And it's published by Ascension Press. So go to ascensionpress.com, search for Living Beyond Sunday, Making Your Home a Holy Place to get your copy or buy in bulk. Cheers to Jesus. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. Talking about Jesus. So what we try to do every episode is talk I about love Jesus. That guy. Talking about Jesus in the Eucharistic uh, revival time period. We're also going to the Holy Land next year, right after Easter. Go check out selectinternationaltours.com slash Catholic awesome. Man Show. Come with us. Yes, it'd be awesome. Uh, we have uh, Father Patrick Briscoe coming with us, Dominican. You know, do you? Yeah, you know, Father, I know Patrick. Father Patrick. Yeah, we actually all three had uh, um, drinks together like a year ago. We did. Yeah, yep. sweet. In Portland, Oregon. Yeah, I feel left out, but yeah. <laughs> you weren't there. So. No, I, I wasn't there. <laughs> actually, you were. We just didn't invite you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> just joking. Okay, ah! so Dave, Dave, uh, before before the break, you had a question that you were okay. teeing up for. Yeah, so there's just this idea of exchange of persons. You see it very, very prominently in marriage trinity um and then you know we call it communion what is happening really when at the moment when we receive the eucharist which we which is commonly called communion like what's the deal yeah what what metaphysically is taking place in my person or your person yeah well i mean the gift thing is a uh, is huge and it's why saint thomas actually compares the Eucharist to creation in the Summa around the Eucharist, right? So, mm. so um, just as God creates uh, from nothing, ex nihilo, mm-hmm. um, and as a gift, right? That's the point of creation from nothing. God didn't have to do it. In fact, if I was God, I wouldn't have because people are annoying. And yeah. uh, But God did, right? So that's the gift. And all of creation, therefore, is gift and reveals something about God and, and God's gift. Um the Eucharist is that, right? It's gift. It's it, it, the fact that actually the materiality of it, uh, it's given under the sign of bread, right? Which um, has a kind of gift quality to it. It's fractured and it's broken and it's given wine pours and flows, right? All of this really matters to the signs of the Eucharist. You know, what's happening when you're, you know, eating the Eucharist I, I, or consuming our Lord, I think is probably a better way of saying it. Um, I... Uh, I remember, you know, my grandmother, when she was growing up, she, you know, she was taught that, you know, 
what you're doing, you know, if you chew upon the host, you you have injured our Lord. You have, you've, you've, he's crying, right? He's hurting. What if that is a funny thing to teach? Yeah, and it was normal. Uh, it was normal in the 50s. Uh, um, <laughs> okay. So you would you sort of l- l- let the host dissolve as long as possible, um, you know, so that you didn't Could hurt you say hurt the same Lord. thing? Like, you're dissolving me! <laughs> like, C- correct. Yes. Um, <laughs> correct. Uh, I'm uh, melting! <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that is why that is not true. So, um, and, and so uh, instead, right, uh, what's happening is, well, of course, right, you are eating the signs of bread and wine, but you are consuming the Lord. But because he's God, um, it's actually, as St. Augustine notes, you're not eating him, right? We, we don't eat God, right? God actually kind of eats you. You're taken up into God. You're taken up into his gift giving, or at least you are if you receive with the right disposition. It's not automatic, right? Uh, you can receive the Eucharist, as again, St. Thomas says in all his hymns, right? Without any grace at all, without any effect, he still gives himself to you. It's an objective gift. But what you're supposed to do is actually want to receive him. You can reject the gift. You can reject the gift, right? And the task, therefore, is to receive, you know, if you want to enter into God's life, if you want to enter into the life of the Trinity, right? Grace, that's what grace is. Yeah. Then you have to actually want to. And you have to prepare yourself for it. You got to pray before you go. Um, You have to live a Christian life everywhere. Uh, You got to be a decent dad, a decent, you know, husband, even above decent, you have to seek holiness. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that that kind of piggybacks off a question that I had. So, uh, in John six, the bread of life discourse, you know, I, like we sh- we should take our Lord seriously. Like when we read in the Bible, like what He says, we should take his, take Him seriously. And yeah, I think that's a good idea. And in John six, you know, He says, "Unless you eat and drink uh, of My body and blood, you have no life within you." Something like that. Paraphrasing. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life within you. So pretty close. Paraphrase. Pretty close. Yeah. 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 His was better. But his was better. Yours, yeah. yours well, was good. Well, it he, was good. His, it wasn't his. It was Jesus's. Yeah. Well, I mean, he said his. Yeah. Anyway. Um, what is the, like, what does that mean for today? Like, how do, how do we take this? Because there's, uh, there's a lot of people, again, Protestants who, who, who are listening right now and, um, they're, they're reading this. Like, how do they, how do they read it? Like, what, what should we, I don't know. I don't know what my question is other than like, how, how do we uh, decipher this? Well, it's pretty clear that if you look at John 6, that Jesus does intend to mean that he gives his body and blood and he gives himself, right? That that, um, you know, it occurs right after he does some uh, weird things. He multiplies loaves and fishes, sort of redoing the manna miracle from the book of Exodus. Yeah. Uh, and then he walks on water and calms storms. Who is it, might we ask? who calms storms, who controls the waters. If you read the Psalms, you know the answer to this. It's yeah, God, God, right? So he's done all this. And then the, the bread of life discourse is sort of a radical sort of uh, explication of this. Like, you, you know, you, your your father's ate man in the desert, but right, I am the bread of life. And um, to, to receive him is to receive this manna, this gift. And when he says, right, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, Right, he doubles down unless you gnaw upon this flesh, as you really sort of savor it and chew it, um, and, and people go away. And so, I, I think what we have to understand is that uh, you know early Christians already understood, right, in this encounter with Christ and in their writing of the Gospels, that the Eucharist is not a symbol, it's not a commemorative thing, it is Christ 
presence given to us. Now, the church had to figure out what that meant. And in fact, there was no arguments about the Eucharist really until 1,000 or a little before 1,000, right? Uh, when people just accepted that. Uh, but then they had ants like, well, how? What, what does that mean? And, and that's where the doctrine of transubstantiation comes from, you know, so that Catholics aren't secret cannibals is not, right. the, mm -hmm. is not yeah. the thing. That's the extreme that St. Thomas wants to avoid. And he also wants to avoid symbolism. And so that's how Catholics read that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a hard teaching. And it's why a lot of people walked away from Jesus, uh, right, in mm -hmm. the, the moment. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Like when you can see Satan's attack on Christianity, it's the first thing to go. Um, you know, you, you look at like Luther is, you know, like that was what Luther changed essentially. He did some other stuff too, but um, the first thing was, all right, we're going to change what we believe about about the Eucharist. But it's been the central, the central thought it seems in in the mind of God throughout all of salvific history. Right, Adam and Eve, you know, when they took the apple from the tree. And, and fell. God said, I will become your own. F I, if you, that's what you want, I will become food and, and put myself on a tree and hang there for, you know, so that you may eat from me. You got the, all the, the manna you mentioned in the Old Testament, like Christ is coming and his own preaching is largely focused around giving his own self in the, which they didn't understand at the time, but the multiplication of the loaves, then immediately following, oh, let me teach you how to pray. Here's the, our father, give us you know, our fathers really give us this day our super substantial bread. Mm -hmm. um, all of these things, he's like pointing to, I will be here with you till the end of the age. And he's talking about the Eucharist. Like, this is what he wanted for us all. Yeah, and that's why I think, actually, it's, this is the kind of dialogue, if you really want to have dialogue today with, you know, an evangelical, uh, you know, a non-denominational Christian about the Eucharist, it's really a scriptural dialogue, right? It, you know, it's this way of reading scripture. And I, I appreciate it. I, I'm not sure, you know, my grandmother who had deep devotion to the Eucharist knew any of this, right? We, we know this. We can talk about it. We can mm -hmm. share it and read the Bible in this way so that, you know, the Eucharist isn't just like some weird Catholic thing. It, it, it's, 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 it's really in the scripture itself, all throughout, if you understand all the images and the types. and. So what's your opinion on... Evangel evangelizing, okay. Um, you you have a neighbor. Where do you where, where do you think it falls in the order of operations? Maybe of saying, hey, why don't you come with me to mass? Because that can also kind of be a little can be a little tricky. Like, hey, I want you to come with me to mass, and you want to be inviting, but then you also have to say, like, but you can't receive communion. You know, like you're invited, but kind of you're not invited in. Is the mass the right, is that an evangelizing tool? Like, should we be just using the mass as, like, come and see, come and check it out? Or is there, can you decipher a question in the thing? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I got a question. Okay, um, good. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, evangelization of neighbors and things like that always begins with friendship first, right? So, okay, yeah. you know, um, if somebody walks up to me and I've never met them before and they're like, hey, would you like to go to mass with me? I'll say, um, I don't know. Um, who are you? Yeah. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's friendship and that's naturally comes up. I think you can invite someone who's not Catholic to mass along with you. I mean, I think it's pretty easy to explain, right? Mass isn't just about receiving the Eucharist, right? It's about an act very, of praise and the yeah. act of sacrifice and the gift of self. You know, scripture is proclaimed. Uh, we lift our voices in song to the Lord. Um, all those things are happening. You know, it's like a young child can't receive, but they're still going to mass and participating. And so, 
you know, I think uh, all that. And then to explain, I think, to your friend, your neighbor who you've gotten to know, like, well, here's why, right? I, I, you know, don't just say, you know, don't wait until mass is starting or, or they're about to go, you know, everyone's up to receive our Lord. And they're like, hey, by the way, you can't receive, just let you know. So yeah. uh, sit down. You didn't do well enough yeah. so far. Yeah. So. so, I mean, explain like this is the reason we receive, the, the reason why you can't receive isn't just because whether you believe or don't believe this, it's not a question of belief. There are, in fact, a, a variety of Protestants who do, in fact, believe in something like real presence yep. and transubstantiation. Um, but um, it's because we're not in communion. Mm-hmm. It's right, because we, this is a union of love. And to join the church is to then be in communion with one another. And that's a, a, that may be an invitation to deeper desire. Maybe like, wow. I actually kind of want to do that. Um, how would I do that? Uh, how would I join in with you? So not receiving can actually be, I think, a kind of better tactic of evangelization. I agree. Good. Yeah. Good. Good, because that would have been weird if you did not agree. There's three reasons why I don't agree with you. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, so when we get back, uh, let's talk about like the effects of, of the Eucharist. Absolutely. And, and like what we should be expecting or not expecting when receiving the Eucharist. Let's do it. All right. We'll be right back. Wouldn't it be nice right after you get up and you say your prayers in the morning, you could check your phone and get caught up on all things that are happening in the Catholic world? That's exactly what GetTheLoop.com does. Go to GetTheLoop.com. Make sure you let them know that we sent you. It's a really easy way to help support the Catholic Man Show because the more people we send to GetTheLoop.com for a free email, it's the only email that Dave ever reads. But by signing up for their email, you're also supporting us because they're supporting our show. This episode is brought to you by GetTheLoop.com. Again, it's the place to go to get daily emails that recap all the big issues from a Catholic perspective. Go to GetTheLoop.com. Make sure you tell them the Catholic Man Show sent you. Cheers. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles here with Adam Minahan, talking with Dr. Tim O'Malley about the Eucharist, the best thing in the world, mm-hmm. literally. Mm-hmm. And Adam, you were going to ask him about the effects of the Eucharist, which I think is important. Mm-hmm. Um, like with the belief, people need to know the what, the why, the how, um, because I think if you understand like the logic behind hey, this is why the church believes what she believes. It's consistent with the very fundamental fact that we believe Christ came as a second person in Trinity, died on the cross to save your sins, right? If that's true, then all, all of the other things that we teach are true, and therefore, like, this is why. This is, like, why it's important in, in your life. Here mm-hmm. are the effects. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess uh, maybe the first kind of way we could go about this is like understanding like, okay, when we receive the Eucharist, does this, uh, like, is there forgiveness of sin? If so, what kind of sin? Mortal, venial? And then also like, does it take away the punishment due to sin? Yeah. Let's so, start, maybe start there. Yeah. So the Eucharist, uh, the fruit, one of the fruits is an increase in charity, right? So I think that's where it actually forgives venial sins. Because what are venial sins? They're losses of charity, right? You're driving along and there's someone who pulls out in front of you and you think like, man, you're the worst human being in the world. And 
that is a loss of charity and receiving God's charity. But God's what love. if they are in fact <laughs> the worst human being? In oh, the absolutely, world. and they probably are. I mean, so somebody's got to be, and it yeah. might be that. It guy. might be that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yet you are called to love them all the more. So uh, that loss of charity, right, is forgiven. Um, mortal sins are not. But precisely because mortal sins cut you off from communion with God right. totally. And so, you, you know, I would imagine that those who are in mortal sin, like let's imagine, you know, you're cheating on your spouse and you're going to mass. You're a contradiction, right? You're a contradiction unto yourself. You're not receiving charity, right? Because you're married, right? It's not just that it's adultery and that you're cheating on your spouse. It's because marriage is the the union of the couple. They're, they're meant to be Eucharistic, Right. And now you're going to lie, right? You're lying to the Lord and you're not receiving that. You're receiving under your own condemnation, right? It's irreverence. And so it doesn't forgive that. Uh, you know, the, the church says that it doesn't forgive like punishment for sin or, or sort of the effects of sin in the long term, right? Um, uh, right. But, um, you know, I, I think the way I like to think about this is more, right? Each time I receive the Eucharist, I am to increase in charity, right? God's charity. I'm to receive this charity, to become this charity, and um, the more that I do that, the more that sin will be less attractive to me if I do so aware of what I'm doing. Is there a uh, indulgence for receiving the Eucharist? I don't recall. I don't there's know. an indulgence for just about everything. So. I think there are certain things you have to do for the indulgence. Well, wouldn't, I'm not t- thinking about a plenary indulgence. Those often, yeah, yeah. those have more conditions. But yep. they, yeah. you can just do the sign of the cross. Boom. Mm-hmm. Partial indulgence. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, yeah, so you were talking about also the fruits. So if uh, when we receive the Eucharist, we, re- you know, we increase in charity, uh, it, you know, so you're, you're also in, you're increasing in virtue, meaning that not only do you not want to do, you know, the vices that are in your life, but you can't even imagine doing them, right? It's not right. like you're not, you're not fighting them anymore. You're, you're like the, the thought of doing an evil, like, disgusts you. Yeah. Um, so how does that play out? Like what what else? Like how does that play out in the rest of your your life, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, first of all, to to get there, like the mass alone isn't enough. I think this is why why the Second Vatican Council notes right that there needs to be other things. So you need to be pursuing holiness in every dimension of your life. You know, um, for me, that means uh, doing the best I can every day to pray the litur- liturgy of the hours, and so the Psalms, and to 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 really sort of uh, be there and to pursue the good um, and to do so in a way that disciplines my own will, which is sometimes doesn't want to pray. Um, and and so that I, I think is essential. Um, you know, what does it look like? I think it looks like the saint, right? Who's the saint? The saint desires the good. It's why we admire saints. It's why we imitate them. It's why we see them as models of holiness, right? Uh, and so, you know, these growth and virtue, it's not automatic. It's not like okay, I receive the Eucharist and now like I, I, st- I'm, I cease being an impatient person. I am an impatient person. But the increase in charity should make me want to say like, well, my impatience, for example, towards my students, they're a huge, it's a huge problem. Like, do, shouldn't I have the same charity that the Lord has towards me? And that means it's ascesis, asceticism, discipline. And, and that's not something that can happen just in the mass. It has to happen everywhere. So when I'm impatient, I have to remember that and ask for forgiveness at that moment, uh, you know, in prayer. So if we're all in like communion, uh, is it feasible to think that when I receive communion and I'm growing in charity, it actually can benefit 
Dave? Absolutely. That's the whole thing. Yeah, you receive, uh, not only do you receive actually for Dave and those who are there who really want to, you're actually receiving for all those, even those who are outside, right? There's a, an act of reception where your charity manifests, the, increases the communion of love amongst all the saints and so and the sinners, ideally, right? So that charity can benefit everyone, your neighbor, um, because we're united with each other. It's not just private, it's communal. There has been a big, like a lot of talk over the last decades about active participation in the mass. Um, can you talk briefly about what that means? Like, what should my attitude be, um, especially during the consecration of the of the Eucharist? Um, you know, the priest is obviously standing on behalf of us, the people, but is also in personic. You know, like what what should I be doing? Yeah, you should be paying attention to the clown. So there should be clowns. No. Um, <laughs> when he's juggling, yeah. that's when you really get one that's with when, the purple hair. Purple's yeah. liturgical color. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think active participation means your interior life is linked up with your exterior actions, right? So at the moment of the consecration, for example, you should be kneeling. You might be looking at at the, the sort of elevation of the species. You might not, right? I mean, I think as I've gotten older, just to be honest, I actually don't look at many things during the mass, right? Because my own life of prayer is, um, is, is, is larger. So, so in some sense, you should be delighting uh, in the moment. That's the active participation. It doesn't, you know, you're kneeling, your hands are folded, perhaps you're, um, you perhaps are looking, but you're loving. And, and that's the, what, what's active, right? So, so you're not just like, okay, when is this over? Oh man, um, he chose Eucharistic prayer one. This is gonna be a lot longer. Uh, there's Linus, there's Cletus, there's Clement, there's right. Sixtus. Um, that's active participation. It's it's attunement of your interior and your exterior with one another. Okay. I like it. Well, that's what uh, Joseph Ratzinger said. Well, then, yeah. It's a, that's a say. It's always safe to go with yeah. Benedict Ratzinger. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, let's talk about uh, the reception of Holy Communion, like the difference like with scandal and like public sin versus private sin, because uh, that seems to always be a hot topic of like, who should be able to receive communion? Should we deny people certain, you know, communion? Yeah. Um, let's talk about that. Yeah, I want to deny USC fans communion. So I think that's yeah. the most, the I worst mean, of all sins. Obviously. Um, no, I, I mean, I think it's really complicated. So, you know, there are, there's canons, and I'm not a canon lawyer, and I, I'm like radically not a canon lawyer. Like, yeah. I don't know anything about canon law. Um, I presume it's about canons, things that you shoot. So, right, uh, which I think canon law would be a lot more popular if it was canon. <laughs> if law. it had more canons in yeah. it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I think that uh, there are certain, you know, politicians, for example, and other figures who are sort of scandal. Like, there are certain canons that get activated, and you know, they are talking. You don't know the conversations, for example, they've had with their bishop and what the bishop has decided. Uh, to be honest, I stay out of that because. Well, it's not your responsibility. Sure. It's not my responsibility. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, when, when we think about very public scandal, like if I was a priest and I thought that there was like a really public scandal, I would probably, like I wouldn't wait for the moment in which the person is approaching at mass and then throw them away because I think that right. actually detracts from the reverence that we should all be experiencing. You should talk to this person outside of the mass itself. Yeah. Um, and I think the same thing with private sin. And I think the more... You know, a Eucharistic revival should also be a revival of confession and the sacrament of confession. So the more that we talk to people about how we should receive the Eucharist full of charity, that would be better, 
right? I think that's part of the revival that's necessary is can we get people understanding that going to confession is not a terrifying event, but an ordinary event in the growth of holiness. That also means we might actually need to increase the number of confession times at parishes, right, from 5.07 to 5.12 on a Saturday. Right. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, so you're, uh, you're talking about reverence as well. What is the effect of you in Mass, having reverence ordered in Mass to your children seeing you participate in Mass? Yeah, children imitate everything. That's what they are. They're little imitative creatures, mimetic creatures. They're just uh, responding to everything. And so uh, let me say something like it's really important, especially as a dad. There's been studies, right? Um, Dads are the most important religious person in the lives of their children, right? It's the most effective Mm -hmm. way to faith. It, It has to be like beautiful and you have to love your children. You can't be a sort of totalitarian dictator, um, but if you pray, well, if you pray and are reverent, your children notice it and you have to be able to express to them also why it matters to you to, to, to be honest, right? It's sometimes hard for, I think, men to be like, listen, I actually really love Jesus Christ and mm-hmm. he's the center of my life. And I need to tell my kids this, right? I mean, you know, I can't just be like, Hey, stop, stop, stop doing that thing. Stop flicking them. And yeah, <laughs> you're being annoying, yeah. right? Like I have to share like, no, like this is really important to me. This is why, why I'm so important. This yeah. is why we do this as a family. And you do that, right? Your kids grow up with it. Praise God. Yeah, it's not enough just to go to mass because if it doesn't, if, if Jesus doesn't mean anything to you, your kids, are, they're the best BS meters yep. in the world. They know. Lies. Yeah, exactly. Lies. And so if you expect them to like have a real relationship with Christ and you don't, then you're a fool. Uh, we're out of time on the radio. Dr. Tim O'Malley, thanks so much for hanging out with us. But we'll continue on the podcast. Go check it out. TheCatholicManShow.com. We're on the Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass. And cheers to Jesus. So um, you kind of mentioned a little bit last night on your talk about your own personal like, like love for the Eucharist. If you don't mind, would you like, when was it that you fell in love with Christ in the Eucharist? Yeah, it was it was my first communion or preparation for my first communion. Really? Yeah. Um, I do not remember like I don't even remember my first communion, so I know it, that wasn't it for me. Yeah, yeah, for me it was. Yeah, my um, that's, gran- that's beautiful. Yeah, my grandparents really pushed uh, for me to start going to mass. My 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 parents did not grow up Catholic, and so my grandparents were the ones who really pushed me. And um, yeah, I mean, I just. I remember going to my grandparents would take me to like all sorts of things, you know, Eucharistic adoration and uh, evening prayer services. And I just got a sense that God was real there. Right. And God was real. And you know, I don't think I could articulate how or why or sure. what, but that, that he was real. And so, you know, I've always loved mass. I, I, there's not been a single moment in my life where I think I, I was like, well, I don't want to go to mass because I find this boring and terrible. Um, there's other times where I was like, I don't want to go because I'm mad at you, God, or, other but mm-hmm. i love it that was when wow what a gift it was that that really is a gift because i didn't have that i mean i grew up in a very catholic you know great home um and i understood and knew the thing i i, I knew what the eucharist was you know as well as i could at you know as i was growing up um, but it, i wasn't until it wasn't until i was older that like i really fell in love with christ in the eucharist it mm-hmm. it 
but if I had had that as a as a younger person, I think it would have kept me more oriented on the things I thought about, cared about, pursued in life. You know. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's talk about just for briefly uh, Eucharistic adoration mm-hmm. uh, in this world of utilitarianism. Like a lot of times, pro or against? Pro, yeah, pro or against uh, Eucharistic adoration? Radically against. No. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so in this world of like, you know, uh, utilitarianism and like, you know, trying to understand like, okay, if I want to get into adoration, do I say these type of prayers or these type of prayers or, you know, what should I be doing during adoration? Yeah. Can you maybe just talk about like the importance of just resting in our Lord? Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard because the type of prayer that we have the least experience with is contemplative prayer. Yeah. Um, just Which sitting. means what? Contemplative prayer is just sitting and uh, speaking to the Lord from your heart, even resting just in silence before Christ. Um, you know, I think a lot of people today are very familiar with very extensive programs of like religious exercises, um, you know, spiritual exercises. Um, and I think part of what makes it difficult is we have no other experience of contemplation, right? So St. Teresa of Avila talks about this. And, you know, I think if you really want to just learn to sit before the Lord and just receive his presence, you probably got to start with some contemplation outside of Eucharistic adoration, you know, even 15 minutes um, per day, just yeah. go through the Our Father, as Teresa of Avila recommends, and just say each phrase and sit with it for about 15 minutes. Don't look at a clock, but whatever. You do that for a little bit, you're going to be much better at walking into a chapel and, uh, you know, sort of being in the presence of our Lord for an hour without, you know, coming in necessarily with, you know, every single prayer book that has ever been composed and spending that hour as quickly as possible, you know, trying to avoid actually attending to the presence of love that's there. Yeah, a lot of that, there is a natural training that has to, you have to acquire some natural virtue yeah. in order to do this. Uh, Mother Teresa, I heard her make a comment once about, someone asked her about being distracted in prayer, and she said, well, you distract yourself all day long. We have our phones that we constantly this stare is, at. This is Mother Angelica. What did I say? Mother Teresa. I said, Mother Teresa, I thank you. Phones, yeah. phones, cell phones weren't even around. No, no, no. I meant Mother Angelica. <laughs> I, thank you for correcting me. You know, but if the, her point was, if you are distracting yourself all the time, all day, and then you go to pray, like, why do you think that you won't continue to be distracted? So um, you have to, and I say this fully aware that I... You know, I got problems. Okay, over here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm not. <laughs> I got problems. Physician, heal thyself. Right, exactly. <laughs> but you have to establish. It's sort of like going to the gym. You know, if if you're going to go to the gym to be have you know natural gifts, right? Then this is the same. You have to have quiet time in your life, simply so your mind. You can train your mind to be quiet, right? Otherwise. Um, like for me, contemplative prayer often is daydreaming mm-hmm. and, you know, I'll reach the end of my time that I've set aside to pray for the day and realize, well, God, I hope, um, I hope any of that was, <laughs> I hope that was good enough for you today. Like <laughs> not really sure <laughs> what happened, but, uh, you know, I love you. So <laughs> <laughs> I spent about 15 minutes thinking about bunnies. That was a surprise. (laughs) Lord, I hope that that was okay for you. I know you can do, uh, you've done (laughs) more with a lot less. Yeah, I pray that maybe I'll need to have, need the information I thought about, you know, later on. Maybe that'll be spiritually (laughs) significant or something, whatever. Uh. Yeah, I think this is, uh, the natural thing is huge. I mean, the the work that I always assign my students is, uh, 
Joseph Pieper on happiness and contemplation. Yeah. And the reason why I do it is because there is a natural dimension to contemplation, right? You have to go to a place where you learn to look at things, right? And to look and behold with love and with the eyes of love and, and gazing and to be in silence. This is why I think um, like outdoor formation is actually really quite essential to really the life of prayer is, you know, like going out into the natural world, hiking and um, spending time alone and learning the art of wonder again. I mean, this is the thing that I think naturally is needed so that you can get more out of adoration. You can learn it in adoration, but, um, you know, I think it's easier to learn it in all these other ways. And and because we don't live this, we, we don't live this sort of contemplative life elsewhere. We find every act of contemplation miserable. One thing that I'm trying to work on doing I'm trying to be intentional about at least doing it sometimes is only doing one thing at a time. You know, I, there's a, I, I feel the desire, the temptation to be productive. Okay. Um, oh, I'm mowing the yard. I sh- I'll, I'll use this time to also listen to a, an audio book or do something, you know, like, or I'll put music on while I'm fill in the blank. Um, and I think that that's great, fine to do. So, but I think that there's also a great lesson to be learned and like human de- formation in simply doing one thing. Like, no, I don't have to also listen to this audiobook, right? It's okay just to mow the yard, just to whatever it is you're doing, like you're just doing the dishes. You don't need to like get accomplish something else at the same time because. The, the dishes, the yeah. dishes, doing them is good. Yes. Okay. And to d- devote yourself to the goodness there, I, I think that we actually do ourselves a great disservice and discount the ordinary goods and and things that we do, and we we miss the opportunity to really make them an act of service and love um, by distracting ourselves once again, and then it plays itself out in prayer when we try to do that later. Yeah, that's well said. Sorry, I didn't hear everything you said. I was looking at my phone. Yeah. No, was, uh, no, I think you're right. That's uh, it's a, it, that's one of the practices that I think would make adoration more fruitful. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on cultivating a love for the Eucharist between uh, husband and wife and how to do so? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, right, just actually making, like going to mass with our kids and the fact that my wife and I have to work to do that is um, that's part of our love of the Eucharist, right? It's cultivated. We, we put this as top priority. Number one, Sundays mm-hmm. are this, um, you know, I think I, I have to admit, like I struggle a lot with like how to pray best with my wife. And, you know, like I'm, I'm the kind of guy who's like, if I can rise at five and be alone with the natural world and pray my office and, have my cup of coffee and be at the gym by 5.45. The Lord has given me great gifts. Mm-hmm. My wife is the kind of person who's like, why did the sun rise at all? Uh, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I, I, I think part of it is um, for, it was recognizing for, for Kara and I, you know, the, the way that we had to develop our love for the Eucharist in our life of prayer was actually separately from one another. And that, w- that mm. was okay. Yeah, I think um, I think that that is actually the case most of the time. Yeah, yeah. So like, there wasn't you know a lot of people are like you have to pray together all the time, and yeah, that's not going to work. Uh, 
Um, yeah. But but this is actually how it's it's happened. So yeah, my my wife goes to mass separately from me, and I go to mass uh, a daily mass, mm-hmm. not Sunday, a uh, daily mass. Or you know, we spend time in adoration separate from one another, and you know, we we organize our life to that. I guess that's the short answer. But um, we're, we're not the kind of people who are like let's go sit in adoration together because um, I don't like to be with people. Yeah, it's been great hanging out with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When's my flight? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I do you have any anything else you want to talk I about? I don't know yet. If you have another question, I might have another one. But no, I, I'm I'm good. I was just gonna ask him uh, where people can go to read his stuff. And- so oh, I, I I have one question to wrap up. Like just very practical. If there's one thing someone can do, it's like all right, I want to love Jesus more in the Eucharist. What is it? Just one. Will it easy? Desire it. I'm, I'm asking our guest. Oh, Adam. sorry. But I, like I, do, I do think that's a good one. Adam's, Adam's is a good one. I do actually think that was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably like if this was Family Feud. Yeah. That's probably one or two already. Yeah. That's at the, the top. I uh, agree. Yeah. Um, I guess for me, the thing to do is just learn a little bit more about the Mass. Uh, there's books on it. I have a book on it. Um, but learn actually about the Mass. Um, the Mass is kind of like, I always compare it to a complicated piece of exercise equipment at the gym. Uh, but we don't treat it like that, right? Yeah. So you like, there's certain pieces of equipment at the gym. You go in and you're like, I don't know what to do with this thing. Like I could, it could help me. But to be honest, I do not understand even what this belt is for and what I'm supposed to do with it. And so yeah. someone has to come and be like, that's actually what it's for. And this is how you do it. And this is. Yeah, actually, it goes around your ankle. Yeah, uh, you, you're, yeah. You, <laughs> what saw you, you putting around in your neck last week. <laughs> Yeah, that's not going to work. Yeah. I mean, you have a very strong neck you're, until you die. You were very um, close to injuring yourself. I <laughs> yeah. <want> you. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you got to know those things. And I think the same with the Mass, you know, like, how do you make the sign of the cross? Why do you make the sign of the cross? The more you learn about it, yeah. right, the more you're going to be intentional when you do it, right? Because your imagination is going to be formed enough to be like, well, as I do this, I think about it. So, yeah. I think it's simple. Learn as much as you can about the actual prayer of the Mass, the whole Mass, and you'll be a better lover of the Eucharist. Beautiful. Okay, so where can they go to, you know, you write on it on occasion and not only books, but in articles, where can they go to find some of your work? Yeah, uh, write at Church Life Journal, which is our journal of the McGrath Institute. Um, I have books through Ave Maria Press and Our Sunday Visitor and Liturgical Press. Um, those are places you can go to find me. You can Google me and find me. There is a Notre Dame football writer who goes to my parish and lives in my same town named Timothy P. O'Malley. Uh, it's not confusing. If you find him, you have, I am, if it's about Notre Dame football, it's not by me, it's by him. And he's excellent. But it might be good stuff too. It's very good. But if, just to let you know, you've not found me. Don't, don't ask right. me like the, about the latest recruit. Gotcha. It's typically a five-star. I mean, it's <laughs> Notre Dame. Yeah, we actually have a hard time with five-star recruits. We don't get them. This is the challenge. Really? Yeah, hmm. a lot of four stars, but five stars are difficult. So if you're a five star recruit looking, I can't recruit you, but um, and that's legally allow- not allowed. So, but um, look at all institutions. Let me invite you, including <laughs> some in South Bend. But if you want to go to heaven, <laughs> hey, hey, Dr. Malley, thanks so much for hanging out and, and for being a, a, such a, a grace to our to our diocese throughout this week, and uh, we really appreciate it. Oh man, thank you. Cheers.